Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Sam. Lovely to see you. We're lovely in your, to see you. We're today. in your room. Yes, and we're having a we are having a lovely time. Your habit of beginning every conversation we have by stating the place we're in at the time. I do that with every conversation. It's very strange. With I don't whoever know whoever I'm talking to. Yeah, you might want to. I don't know. Hello, Dougal. <laughs> we're in a cafe, Nero. <laughs> I'm very I'm eccentric that way. You might want to think about about changing that one up. I don't know where you got that from, but uh, yeah, it kind of freaks out. It's a bad first impression of making a date. Like, you know. bit of an odd first date remark. Yeah. We're in a cocktail bar. Are you <laughs> happy to be here? Um, Cocktail bar. This is where I'm going wrong. We're in a Witherspoons. <laughs> uh, what a cheap date I, I am. You sound like a wizard who just, you just, you know, you just transport people into certain places. Just maybe maybe power, I am. The, the power of speech. So one of the things that I like to do in my spare time, uh, maybe before I go to bed at night and I'm browsing through YouTube, is watch some of the latest trailers. Sometimes I just put in the word trailer into the YouTube search bar by itself just to see. Just to see what happens. Just to see what happens. <laughs> Anything could happen. But it's always interesting to see see the trailers that are, are going to come out. Oh, I like the trailers. Oh, I love a trailer. Oh, I love a trailer. Oh, I'd hear his fucking voice again today. Oh, my God. The Odin that man. Guy. Yeah. Please do let us know if you're as sick of that fucking Odin man as we are. Can't take him. Oh, especially chosen for this film, actually. Especially, um, <laughs> <laughs> fuck Chose, off. Chosen for this film, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, the sit down. Everyone, be quiet. I can see you in row two. It's like, no, you can't. Fuck off. How oh, does he say that now? I think that's a bit of new dialogue. Well, um, because I wanted to see Murder on the Orient Express, and my mum, she loves for the whole. She's in for the whole experience, right? So she has to be there before like the ads start. Yeah, yeah. So before that starts, it's like there's a, a oh, little. He does a little bit at the yeah, beginning. It's oh, like, okay. okay, everyone just. Turn off your phones and get ready for the experience of the cinema. And he, and he starts sort of like calling out imaginary people who are on obeying his rules. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. All right, that guy should never work again. I, I know it's not his fault. He didn't write the script, but that guy needs to be kicked out of that industry and should never return to it. Anyway, so trailers. So I was looking at uh, some of the latest trailers on YouTube. And one is Call My Eye. I understand you've seen it as well, Danny. Oh, I've seen it. Uh, this is the trailer for The Post an upcoming Steven Spielberg project. I think we've mentioned it before in some episode past. Uh, it stars um, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, and they are both journalists who work for the Washington Post, the post of the title, and they come into a cache of secret government documents about the Vietnam War, um, and then they're put under a lot of pressure to not publish them by the government, but you know, with the, the power of journalism in their hands, they cannot be stopped, truth must out, uh, and they're just going to do it. And it looked like it was going to be a bit of a saccharine uh, sort of smug affair with two of like, basically the two Hollywood icons of sort of actorly integrity, you know? Yeah. With, with, with the biggest uh, twinkles of heroism in their in their respective eyes. The two people who get the biggest standing ovations just when they order coffee or do anything at all together in one film. It sounded like it'd be like liberal overload a little bit. And... <laughs> 
and that is exactly how it looks from the trailer. Let's hear a little bit of that. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times says 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. Okay, people are concerned about having a woman in charge of the paper. That she doesn't have the resolve to make the tough choices. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. Let's do our jobs. Find those pages. You're talking about exposing years of government secrets. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Ben, I might have something. It must be precious cargo. It's just government secrets. Wow. Wow. Goodbye, Trump. It's, it's hard... <laughs> You know, you start cynical, but by the end, you have tears uh, flooding down your face. One tear per line on alternate e- uh, eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly... It's exactly uh, what you expect. Yeah. It looks like uh, the sort of... Um, it looks a bit like shit spotlight. Yeah, exactly. With a slightly sort of worse material and more smugness about, like, journalism. Yeah, a bit too much of the bugle playing and the flag waving. Even though those didn't feature in the trailer, I'm sure... It's going to be in there. You know it's going to be in there. You're going to have that waving American flag in there somewhere. He fitted it into Bridge of Spies, and he's definitely going to get it into this one. It's a, I think there's a bit of um, an element of like nostalgia for the journalism of the past, you know? And we're in this internet age now, everyone's BuzzFeed or whatever. Um, and it's just, remember when it used to be just guys, you know, working together on a story, out on the beat. Um, working late. Working late. Typing. Kind of Had to type it all with little, little machines that were, that were that clacked, you yeah. know? <laughs> it was harder back then. Remember that clack? I miss that so much. Yeah, but I think, like, there's this real elevation of journalism in the sort of, like, American liberal mindset. They just love it. And you would never, like, Spielberg would never make this kind of movie about, like, direct action or something like that, you know? Yeah. Or, like, people who have to, you know, roll their sleeves up and, like, you know, do anything, anything other than sitting behind a desk being heroic there. And that's the ultimate way to do it. Yeah, but I don't know. It feels like the crux of the drama is, like, will they or won't they publish? And it's like, well, they obviously should. If they didn't, they'd be dicks. So, like... (laughs) It's not like, I mean, what's going to happen to them? You know, there's a whole thing where, like, we might lose the paper. It's like, well, you'd have no, what's the point of a paper if you don't publish the thing? So, yeah, I don't know. I felt like the sort of dramatic engine was a little bit weighted. And there's, just this, there's just this feeling that you've seen the entire movie. I mean, I felt like I'd seen the movie just from the announcement. And then now having watched the trailer, I've, I've, that's the movie that I thought that I'd seen. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's coming out in January. It's like in the super speedy production. Are you a bit suspicious of Spielberg's quick turnaround process? Is he is he he's ramping up towards Woody Allen levels uh, of film production? Like, yeah. Well, has the Naughties produced a good Spielberg movie? Like a really iconic it's, it's, one. He's produced a lot of them. I guess but... Catch Me If You Can is like the one that perhaps yeah people has remember the most, that movie most, most staying power. power. Yeah, but it's also one of his most frivolous films. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, Sam, what's this podcast about? Let I'm me tell bored you, of Danny. talking here about Spielberg. Tell me what this podcast is about now. I'd be delighted to. This is a podcast all about two average 15-year-old girls, Sam Foster and Danny Moran, who spend their days studying yoga with their guru, Yogi Bear, and working <laughs> working an after-school job at a Manitoba convenience store called Air to Z. A couple of great gags just to kick this <laughs> off. They're only going to increase the number of great gags in the podcast. Uh, they're also in a cover band called Glamthrax with their 35-year-old friend Ichabod on drums. 
The girl's history teacher informs the class one day that the Nazi party once had an influence in Winnipeg, led by the self-proclaimed Canadian Führer Adrian Arcand and his right-hand man Andronicus Arcane. The Canadian Nazis were once a great force of terror. Arcand was later arrested by federal authorities, but Andronicus Arcane was never found. Okay, this is all important setup okay, information. Okay, I'm all in. Yeah. Adronicus Arcane. Yeah, uh, there's a bit, there's wasn't a bit found. more. There's a bit more to come. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here's the inciting incident of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so... So one one day, right, the uh, the two girls, Sam Foster and Danny Moran, uh, the 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 people who own the store are away. So so, and there, there, there's a guy that they fancy at school called Hunter, and Hunter's hosting a, a party, right? It's going to be an okay, exciting okay. party, and the girls, that's me and you, <laughs> in our podcast. The girls say, "Look, Hunter, you can you can have your party at our convenience store because it's empty, and also they want to have you know they want to make sure that they're where the action is." So they host this party, but two of the guests, Hunter and one of his friends. Turn out to be Satanists who want to sacrifice and dismember Paul Sam Foster and Danny Moran. However, before this can occur, an army of little monsters called Bratsies, which are one foot tall Nazis made of Bratwurst, attack and kill Hunter and Gordon, who are the, uh, the two uh, sexy Satanist boys. Using their yoga skills, Sam and Danny fight and defeat the Bratsies, but are soon arrested for the murder of Hunter and Gordon. And that is only the beginning of what will go on to be a thrilling adventure, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2016 film Yoga Hoses, directed by Kevin Smith and starring his daughter and also Johnny Depp's daughter. Uh, instead, this is just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster and joining me, the daughter of Johnny Depp, Danny Moran. This is like a TV show where the cold open is like 45 minutes and the episode is like 10 minutes. But no matter, it's all great content. So on this episode of Film Chat, I review No Stone Unturned, the latest doc from acclaimed filmmaker Alex Gibney. Having pissed off big business with his film Enron, the smartest man in the room, and annoyed the US military with his film Taxi to the Dark Side, and ruffled the feathers of Julian Assange with his film WikiLeaks We Still Secrets, and become a persona non grata with the Church of Scientology with his film Going Clear, he has set his sights on a far less daunting organization which has no history of recriminations. The loyalist parliamentary forces in Northern Ireland. You're crazy, Gibney. Why are you trying to piss off all these people who are going to kill you? Then, me and Sam tackle The Florida Project, the new film from Tangerine director Sean Baker. Looks like he's gone from Tangerine to an orange state, which is what Florida is known as, colloquially. I don't know. I, I love the film so much I can't think of a joke about it. That was brilliant. Thanks. That's brilliant. Fallon's going to be using that one in his monologue. Oh, no, no, fucking Fallon. He's always ripping us off. And then everyone is welcome aboard our review of Murder on the Orange Express. It's destination, it fucking Sucksville. Stopping at <laughs> Branner at Shittington. Uh, script is total pantyhose food. And directionals over the place upon Thames. Plus, <laughs> we discussed the revised plans for Lord of the Rings TV series and investigate whether Disney is a soulless corporate juggernaut that will crush anybody who oppose it. And we're very surprised by what we discover. All of which should give me just enough time to watch Sir Kenneth Branagh's version of Hamlet. Uh, no, wait, sorry. The running length is longer than the longest period of time that is possible. <laughs> so we'll have to give that a miss. Fair it's enough. a shame. It's the long. Have you ever seen it? No, Don't. but I'm aware that it's over three hours long. <laughs> oh, God, it? mate. You, you never get that time back. I don't think anyone can spend that amount of time with Branagh. 
Even his longest dinner parties surely have to end at about two hours 45 once the guests leave. And he was married to Emma Thompson for like four years. Like, how? Yeah, but I, she was probably very busy in that time. I doubt she spent more she than She was running of, Sense of Sensibility. She he was, was in a different room. She was working a lot, you know, very, she was very uh, in very high demand at the time. So I don't think she would have spent a lot of time with him. No, m- maximum 90 minutes, like feature length periods of time with Ken. The whole marriage was 90 <laughs> minutes from, from meeting to the final divorce papers yeah, settlement. Just, it was just spread over a very, very, very long period. So, Danny, you've been running more epic polls on our Twitter account. These <laughs> polls are absolutely flooded with responses and I think demonstrate like the definitive answers to some of cinema's most pressing questions. Yep. Take us through the latest one. I asked, what film contains the best Jeff Goldblum performance? Is it Annie Hall or The Fly? And a staggering nine people voted. How, what, and what are the results? The Fly has won with 89%. Uh, Annie Hall got 11%. From which we can deduce... That Annie Hall got one vote, <laughs> and The Fly uh, received eight, eight votes. votes. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a mass expert, but 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 that but that's my best guess as to as to how that breakdown bit works there. So a bit of a Definitive. unfortunate a result for uh, Annie Hall there. I mean, he only has a single line in it, but he delivers it very well. It's very funny. It's one of the best gags in the film. Whereas in The Fly, any any gags delivered by. Goldblum? I haven't actually seen it. It's been a while, but I mean, there's, he's just kind of, he's weird in it. It's kind of funny. He's got a funny manner. It's more funny strange than funny ha-ha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he is more funny ha-ha than funny strange, which is would be the best case you could make for why Annie Hall uh, should win that contest. I think it's his best film. Easily his best film. Easily. Easily, mate. Easily. Hands down. All right. That's the end of the correspondence section. Moving on. On, on to the news. <laughs> His girlfriend's beautiful. Yeah, she's great looking. Great. Little tad on the androgynous side. But yeah, I, I forgot my mantra. Superhero films announced. Casting rumors leaking out. M. Not Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. So last week we were talking about the um, bullying corporate behavior of Behemoth Disney, the the house of the enormous house of mouse, mansion of mouse. Um, Colossus mouse. (laughs) The colossal place where the mouse lives. Um, (laughs) After they were uh, extracting sort of an outrageous deal from uh, cinemas to show Star Wars, they had to uh, pay a huge proportion of the ticket price to uh, Disney um, and that they would be fined if they didn't do so, stuff like that. Um, and there's another uh, rather larger story that is embroiling Disney at the moment with similar kinds of accusations. Uh, it's having a massive dispute with the LA Times, which has arisen after the LA Times published a three-part story. They did like this massive investigation into Disney, basically accusing them of ripping off the city of Anaheim, where uh, one of their Disney worlds is, some kind of Disney world, Disneyland type scenario. And it's been there for uh, several decades and they have struck a number, basically the city council has struck a number of deals with Disney, which are very favorable to Disney. And Disney has sort of held this leverage 
over them that it can pull out its investments at any time and you know a lot like it employs something like thirty thousand uh, people or something like that um in the place so it's like uh, they felt like they had to sort of obey their whims for example there was a, a car park that the city spent over 100 million to build they leased to disney for only a dollar and disney makes uh, tens of millions a year on car parking charges which are then just like collects as revenues and uh, they've also blocked um or like there hasn't been passed any efforts to put a levy on ticket prices like a city tax on ticket prices at disneyland which would bring a lot of revenue for the city which is currently very revenue constrained according to the article and they've also funneled huge amounts of cash into campaigning uh, organizations the PACs that they have in america uh, which can spend enormous amounts of money on electoral races and the, the Times basically accused them of spending a lot of money to support candidates who are pro-Disney and trying to keep out anti-Disney candidates. And there's been a sort of dispute that's arisen with them recently because they've got a new mayor who's a, who's an anti-Disney guy. Yeah, it's kind of like a microcosm of politics, right? This sort of, you always hear about people buying elections. It's, and it's also that attitude that sort of like, you know, I'm a job creator, so you should thank your lucky stars. Yes. Why should I pay more tax? Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah, completely. Without without Disney, this town will be nothing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, like it's like the logic that um, it's a very prevalent market logic, basically, under which you you any kind of civic authority is completely powerless. And it's the exact it's the same kind of argument why um, they say you, know, you can't raise taxes on the rich or you can't do anything to uh, capital, you know, because because they'll just leave and they'll invest somewhere else. And therefore, you have to bend over backwards for them. And so in many ways, this is incredibly unsurprising news. And I don't think it's really like necessarily a problem about like the corporate culture of Disney or whatever. But it's they are an enormous, you know, multi-billion dollar behemoth company. And it would be astonishing if they didn't act this way, to be honest. It's just like <laughs> that's how that's how they do it. But nevertheless, companies don't like to present themselves uh, as these sort of massive sharks eating everything and like squeezing money out of anyone wherever they can. And they proclaim a lot about their integrity and their, you know, uh, wanting to invest in local communities and whatever and their philanthropic efforts. And so Disney was very angry at the LA Times coverage and they banned the LA Times from attending any press screenings for any of Disney's like properties so they couldn't review them, which seems like a rather... Really playing of, into the First of all, image. makes you seem evil. It's also so petty, isn't it? It's just insanely petty. Um, and Disney explained uh, their action in a, in a message they sent out, I guess, to a few journalists. This is the one that was tweeted by Frank Pilotta, who's a CNN journalist. This is Disney. It says, We regularly work with news organizations around the world that we don't always agree with. But in this instance, the LA Times showed a complete disregard for basic journalistic standards. Despite us sharing numerous indisputable facts with the reporter, several editors, and the publisher over many months, the Times moved forward with a biased and an accurate series wholly driven by a political agenda so much so that the orange county register referred to the port referred to the report as a hit piece with a seemingly predetermined narrative we've had a long relationship with the la times and we hope they will adhere to balanced reporting in the future mm, or else or else <laughs> oh that's the last marvel film you'll ever see <laughs> justin chang um yeah. and this all the critics were up in arms about so this kind of blew up on film twitter yeah yeah and like a lot of critics, they started saying Disney wouldn't be, all their films wouldn't be eligible for awards in the critic circles. And are basically within, because news moves so fast, the yeah. bang got lifted quite quickly because of the amount of backlash it got. Yeah, this is a good demonstration of the internet phenomenon, the, the Streisand effect. 
whereby uh, efforts to clamp down and expunge things that uh, you view as unacceptable, you want people to ignore, just inflame them. And so this ever to like shut down the LA Times has only massively increased the amount of attention being paid to this story. I'm testament to that because I had not read that piece before. <laughs> and, and there you go. Now, I mean, who cares about Anaheim City Council and its parking charges? But now... But now, now we know all about it. it. Yeah, so it is the most interesting thing about the story is this banning thing because it's such an incredibly stupid move. It just seems idiotic, like tactically completely wrong. And obviously film critics would be up in arms about it you know that i think the you know journalists want to protect each other and especially want to protect their like you know right to practice free journalism or whatever and obviously they no nobody would stand for this and they even got some criticism from ava duvernay and uh, david simon who both work on disney things i can't wait for the spielberg movie about this tom hanks and uh, meryl streep the <laughs> la times <laughs> reporters the, the times the times yeah, yeah, it's comical in a way. Like, they're such a sort of hilarious. Uh, they're like something out of a Disney movie. They're like, a, I imagine cigar chomping men in a room. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I, I, I'm sure that the other, like any other enormous company of this nature, would would behave similarly. But it, I, I mean, it is still appalling. I guess it's just because Disney are like a family company. Yeah. So they have a bit more of a sort of image to protect. Yes, that's like you'd absolutely you'd true. expect it from I don't know, like News Corp or whatever, like any. Yeah, but yeah. like there, you know, we're a wholesome, we make where dreams come true sort of thing. And so the the juxtaposition is a bit more galling for them when it's exposed. Yeah, completely. And that uh, kind of juxtaposition will become relevant in one of our reviews coming up very shortly. Hey. Mm, Which one? Which one will it be? Which will it be? Very interesting. Amazon, Jeff Bezos is trying to take over the world, a bit like Disney. Him and the Disney guys, are, you know, they, they want to own everything. And... Amazon recently in the past few years have gone into the TV market. Their biggest hit being Transparent, but they've also bought a bunch of stuff you can watch on Prime, trying to rival Netflix in the department. And they are looking to get their own Game of Thrones style prestige water cooler TV show by trying to get the rights to Lord of the Rings and adapting it into a massive TV show. It's going to be so exciting to see Lord of the Rings on screen for the first time. Yeah, which I've is... I've been waiting to see that adapted in, on screen. Which is strikes me as such a strange thing to do because those films are very successful <laughs> and they're like probably permeated pop culture, you know, to saturation point. Everyone they, saw them. Are they, Everyone are, keeps on watching them, right? Like, are they, are, they, are they sort of thinking that like the turnaround on remakes is getting like the scope is sort of becoming narrower and narrower? Yeah, you know, and so uh, like it only took less than ten years for them to remake Spider Man, and it's been more than ten years for Lord of the Rings. So. It does sound a bit like a sort of boy king who's like, well, I want my own Game of Thrones. And it's yeah. like, you know, what's the best? What's the most popular fantasy books? Like, Lord of the Rings? Like, give me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a lot of material they cut out from those books. Yeah, but... and, 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 it, and that was the best stuff. A lot of people watching <laughs> watching that movie were so disappointed they weren't longer. They didn't, where's they didn't Tom Bonderbill? Where's Tom Bonderbill? Where's the Barrow Whites? Where, where are all the songs? <laughs> where are the songs? What about the appendices? There's a lot of elven songs that didn't make it in. Uh, there's the bit at the end where they go back to the Shire and Saruman is running the shy now and they, yeah. and they sort of because they've all drunk the ent water and you know they've been on adventures they've become more powerful uh, and then and they sort of defeat saruman very easily spoiler alert spoiler alert yeah i don't see you know i feel like the films did such a good job that you know you can the whole argument more like we got more time to tell the story but the hobbit movies were shit you know like they drew all they the had appendices they had, they, had too much time. they had way too much time so it'd be interesting to see because obviously those books are very episodic, but 
As it, <laughs> it just reminds me of that like clickhole article, which is like new Hobbit film is like three hours before Bilbo, like Bilbo packing his suitcase. Or something. Yeah. But it's like it's gonna be like that. Yeah, but it's also like how compelling are those like characters? Could they like sustain multiple series? You know, I kind of feel that like. There are bits in the movies which kind of drag. Like, I don't need to see any more of, like, Frodo and Sam and those marshlands. Don't, don't be ridiculous, Danny. <laughs> no, no parts of any of those films drag, especially not in the extended editions, which are all paced perfectly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I guess maybe Gimli could have a bit more to do in the TV show. They're going to make it more like Game of Thrones. There's going to be a lot more sex in it and a lot more like political intrigue and backstabbing. Like before Frodo leaves the Shire, he's going to have to like, it's going to be some sort of graphic rutting and then he's going to have like two of his enemies beheaded. But there's like five women in all of Middle Earth, right? Who are they going to be having sex with? Where where are the sort of boob shots going to come from? That's a good question. Yeah, it just seems like a very strange project. Does it mean like just Lord of the Rings as a brand... And then they will adapt the Silmarillion as a TV series or something like that. I think Is that possible. Uh, well, they're actually going to be the Lord of the Rings. I think it's Lord of the Rings, but you know, it's a lot of appendices. They could fill in a lot of gaps, you know. But yeah. how they get? They have to split the timeline right because maybe you'll see how Feoden got all fucked up with Wormsong. You know, you'll see Wormtongue turn up. Finally, fill that in. Fill that in. That's what that was implied. <laughs> fill it in. Fill it in. <laughs> but also, do, I feel like a lot of those That's the watchword. Um. You know, a lot of the casting was just so spot on, Lord of the Rings. How did so Gandalf iconic. learn how to do all those pipe, you know, the smoke rings and stuff? How do you learn to do that? Maybe we can... Uh, how do you build that firework? How do you build the firework? Where do you get a whole it episode dedicated to how we build that firework. Yeah, maybe there's a firework salesman and he's Gandalf's mate. We didn't see, like, the Council of Wizards, you know, with Radagast in it. Maybe put that in. Yeah. Uh, there's another two wandering about, which I've never mentioned. Yes, but no, no, you're right. Like the the casting is incredibly iconic, and I don't, I don't really see how you can really. It would get be past like, that. can anyone see another Gandalf? Like, it makes no sense to me at all. I feel like it's equivalent to like if they were going to make like Star Wars a TV show. Like, yeah, I know they're sort of doing that in the films by recasting all these iconic things, but it just seems like a bad idea. Well, but they've got the actual people, right? No, but I mean, like they've got this guy playing Han Solo. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So they're sort of doing, you know, treading on the steps of the original, like you know. But, but it's not like a direct remake of the same movie with a new yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be in completely bananas. They have to disguise it a bit. I wonder if this is like an attempt to ride on that kind of uh, willingness for remakes and nostalgia and everything like that. But it's just doing it in a bit of a tone deaf way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like you can't do that thing that Disney is doing with its live action remakes of its animations of just having you know, the same music and yeah, you know, yeah, some yeah. of the iconic same lines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and things like The Force Awakens and Jurassic World have been able to uh, evoke previous m- films while pretending to be original, but it still allows you to constantly nod and wink. But if you're doing a direct remake of a movie that you know everyone is like super familiar with, you can't have the same music, you can't have the same like cast, you can't just like have the same lines, you know? Yeah. So it would be getting it the wrong way around. 
Like, yeah, absolutely. With the, like it's the the exact same uh, story and stuff, but they would have to remove all of the nods and winks because it has to distinguish itself. So yeah, seems really weird. Whatever, Bezos. You know, he's a billionaire. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> do whatever you want. I mean, like Amazon's Amazon sort of business model, which is quite interesting. Probably the topic for another different kind of uh, finance podcast that I'm, I might be might be launching. Watch this space. Definitely not going to do that. But basically, they they reinvest all of their profit into the company, and they don't distribute any of it to like shareholders or anything. So that they always, in all their like statements they release about their finances, they never have any profit because it all gets reinvested. So that's why you know Amazon Studios has expanded so much because they, I mean the company is insanely makes an insane amount of money. They're just like enormous. Yeah, yeah. And they are actually quite profitable, but it just it just all gets reinvested. So that's why they splurge all this cash. I mean, the whole Amazon Prime thing is a very odd thing to me. It's like this service, you know, pay pay a subscription fee to get your uh, books delivered in like five seconds flat. Oh, wait, not enough people are buying it. What if you also get a series about America being taken over by the Nazis? You can watch that. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like a weird, there's something a bit odd about that model. Now it's like Netflix, but you also but you get your books delivered in five seconds flat or whatever. Well, it's just making it irresistible, right? And so everyone has it. All the bookstores are out of business and then they have... Total yeah, market show, and then they'll like hike up the prices. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Go, just go ahead. Good luck. Good luck to you. I'll be certainly curious to see how it turns out. It would amuse me to see the sort of SNL sketch version. It's like the <laughs> same, but like with different people in it or something. Yeah, I think it's a bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. It's quite interesting. Idea. Quite interesting. But very interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. And now on to more interesting stuff. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking Express. This is the new film by the, the legendary visionary auteur and greatest actor of all time, Kenneth Branagh. Um, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Sir. Sir, Sir Lord Sir Baron von Kenneth Branagh himself, who is adapting the very famous Agatha Christie story that was also adapted into a star-studded movie in the 70s. Um, and he himself has assembled a semi-star-studded cast for this version. Of course, because he's the greatest actor of all time, he is playing the central character, the greatest detective in the world, Hercule Poirot, the Belgian, the great Belgian detective himself, um, who <laughs> is aboard a, uh, um, uh, and the Orient Express of the title when a murder occurs and he has to investigate it and speak to a colorful cast of characters who are hiding various secrets. Uh, they include Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, Judy Dench, Johnny Depp, Josh Gad, the iconic Josh Gad, the, the, the snowman from Frozen, Derek Jacobi, Michelle Pfeiffer, Daisy Ridley, Olivia Coleman, and so on and so forth. Here is a clip of, this is prior to boarding the uh, Orient Express when he meets Daisy Ridley and they have um, a little chat. You get a little flavor of his incredible acting. I know your moustache from the papers. You're the detective, Hercules Poirot? Hercule Poirot, I do not slay the lions, <clears throat> mademoiselle. Mary Debenham, monsieur. I'll forget a name, but never a face. Not yours, anyway. You come from Baghdad? It's true. No detail escapes his notice. Your ticket? Ah. 
I might also ask you if you enjoyed your time there as a governess. The chalk on your sleeve and the geography of primer. A governess or a cartographer. <laughs> I made my gamble. I always begin them with geography and monster them till they have the world down cold. They may get lost in life, but I'll be damned if they don't know where they are. Wow. C'est bon. Um, before we saw that, our friend and regular correspondent, Chris Young, got to say, and he sent in some thoughts, which I think uh, kind of hit the nail on the head. He says, Hi, Film Chat. Last week, I attended the glitzy premiere of Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orange Express, and I wanted to share some thoughts. Let's start with Ken himself. Forget Scorsese and De Niro. Forget Herzog and Kinski. There is no more intense actor-director relationship than Branagh and Branagh. As Poirot, Kenneth Branagh's trembling face fills 80% of every shot it's in. The camera's completely obsessed with its star's totally mediocre performance. This is total, unadulterated vanity. Branagh's acting decisions throughout are completely self-centered and infuriating. This Poirot gets to have it all. He's an unfunny comedy character for most of the film, but then a bizarrely maudlin final act has Branagh giving himself a disgraceful amount of Oscar highlight reel moments, where he brandishes a gun, yelling and crying, sp <laughs> spit flecking from his lips. Mon Dieu, he yells in a 70% respectable accent. Why must we murder? Why is man so frail? Also, Poirot is woke now. Brandon really wants Poirot to be liked, but he's a bit worried he won't be, so I'll have some other character suddenly say something racist. Literally, I didn't do it. I hate Mexicans, though. Or, drinking wine, huh? Racists shouldn't mix. To which Poirot will say something cutting like, Well, I don't agree with you there. <laughs> Absolutely the most hoaf-arsed awakening ever committed to screen. The directing is indulgent in completely needless and bizarre ways. There's a long tracking shot through the train which serves no purpose but to draw attention to itself. Flashbacks are rendered in monochrome in case you've forgotten <laughs> how to know when things are old. <laughs> Random parts of the film are shot from a bird's eye view meaning you can't see anything but carpet and bald spots. Why? Honestly, why? Apparently, I'm the only fucking person on earth who doesn't really know the plot of this thing, but it doesn't matter because the actual mystery accounts for about 30 minutes of the film. The rest is Branner ranting and weeping at the end, and a long, shit, boring prologue where Poirot forces a street urchin to boil some fucking eggs and deliberately steps in cow shit with both feet to demonstrate he's a goddamn maverick. No, the plot isn't going to hold this one together. Instead, you get the strong impression that's what's supposed to be good about this star-studded cast, which would maybe be fine if they weren't all absolutely fucking god-awful, with the possible exception of Michelle Pfeiffer. Some of them seem to actively resent just being there, especially Josh Gad and Penelope Cruz. And who can blame them, really? They each have 40 seconds of screen time, in which they would have to use the 20% of the screen not occupied by Branagh's face. Which brings us to Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp should not be in movies. He's a complete piece of shit, and if you cast him, you deserve nothing but contempt. Also, he's no longer capable of acting or even forming intelligible <laughs> phrases. Instead, he grunts and groans his way for a collapsed airbag of a performance. Combine this with Brandon's pantomime cooing, and you have some unendurable and unintelligible dialogue scenes. Don't give this guy work. Wrapping up, the score is shit and only seems to match the tone of the film at random coincidental points. The CGI's Polar Express level and the persistent product placement is a genuine disgrace. Thanks, Film Chat. Keep up the good work. Phenomenal. My Phenomenal hatchet job. We've been rendered uh, superfluous. Yeah, we just need Chris to write in every week. I mean, I had to say, I didn't find it as viscerally <laughs> objectionable as Chris did, but it's hard to disagree with much that he says. Yeah. I mean, it is like just this absolutely absurd level of vanity on the part of Kenneth Branagh, who was already achieving nearly unsurpassed heights of it, you know, on the basis of his career and reputation. Uh, extremely well cast as Gilderoy Lockhart in the Harry Potter movies, a, a man who pretty much resembles 
um and most recently seen in dunkirk doing just like olympian amounts of preening uh on a pier just to remind us all how great he is yeah i mean he is a, a truly like just a bad actor in every in every way he is a bad actor like the craft of acting is not one he is suited to not know? at all and it's especially weird that he's picked poirot to be his like this is my character and watching it i was reminded of i once read this book um called conversation with wilder which is cameron crowe the director of almost famous um interviewing billy wilder who adapted agatha christie's book murder for the prosecution any um, paraphrasing witness, witness for the prosecution, for the that's prosecution. the one there is a murder in it though murder for the witness of the prosecution oh, yeah. and uh billy wilder said this thing where he said agatha christie's he's like the characters aren't that good but the plots are amazing and i think that's like very true and you know she didn't create a character as iconic as like philip marlowe or sherlock holmes but like her characters like miss marple and uh, hercule poirot are like more a collection of mannerisms yeah and they're just there to be a sort of surrogate for the audience where I know, like, Cluedo is based on Agatha Christie, but it is a bit like Cluedo, where, like, Poirot will go around collecting the clues, and if you haven't solved it by the end, he will gather everyone there and explain it to you. Yeah, it's like and... it's like murder mystery dinner parties. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's not much there for an actor to work with, and the ones that have been successful have just had actors who are just naturally quite charismatic, like Peter Ustinov or David Suchet. But he's, like, given himself this kind of, as Chris was talking about, this kind of prologue scene and all this, like, tortured... Like he's OCD and he's tortured by his amazing gift, which is not at all in the Agatha Christie text. And he's made an ensemble film like a solo acting piece. Yeah, it's I mean, so that, that weird. Is, that what? is really inexplicable because it is very, very focused on on him. And he's got all these like great actors around him and gives them absolutely nothing to do. Yeah, exactly. Like, Judy Dench has nothing to do in this film, and Penelope Cruz is completely underused. And like the joy of Agatha Christie and Murder of the Express in particular, and I would recommend if you're going to see any version, see the 1974 one, is all the kind of details of like this character was in this room and the watch stopped at this time and this person was here and like all that kind of meticulous plotting, kind of Swiss watch plotting is just like completely sort of just breeze, breeze, breeze through. through. So you're never in any doubt. I mean, it's got a very famous twist, but I think anyone who didn't know it would guess it quite early on. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is the only version of the story that I've seen. I did know the twist going in, and they certainly lay a lot of emphasis on the things that, you know, reveal the, the actual... There's not very many... Like, the red herrings are not particularly well dangled. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Poorly dangled. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, part of the reason why I didn't find it, you know, quite as horrifying as, as Chris did is that it kind of has this tone... It was basically like a children's film, it's very broad. It's like ridiculously so. Uh, right from the very start where he's fussing over these eggs that he's brought. And I'm like, wow, that guy's a real dickhead. I mean, like they get all this effort to get in these eggs and he won't accept them because they're not exactly the same size. Like, what a prick. But that establishes that he's a sort of charming eccentric uh, quite early on. And then like every character is introduced, you know, immediately will state their life's philosophy just so you know what sort of person they are, you know. And it's all, it's, it just feels like a kid's movie. Yeah. And even the sort of uh, painted, like, rather unconvincing CGI backdrops, it's like, it looks like it was adapted from a roller coaster, you know? Yeah. Like, sort of, uh, <laughs> like, Pirates of the Caribbean style. And the whole thing is so frivolous that it was hard to be too bothered by it, to be honest with you. And I find Canna an endlessly amusing screen presence, simply because it's so transparent, you know? It's always him. There's no, there's no, like... Uh, sort of veil of disbelief 
Like, there's no audience disbelief. That can, can, you can't muster it. You're never watching anyone but Kenneth Branagh, you know? It's like the opposite of disappearing into a role. Um, and it's just, I just find it kind of funny. Especially that he's chosen to, like, do this one with this crazy accent. And he's got this absurd moustache, which every character mentions, every other line. Yeah. Because he's so fucking pleased There's with so it. much acting going on, and yet it just doesn't amount to it anything. It doesn't amount to anything. It just, it just vanishes instantly. Um... Yeah, and it's just like the script is total bullshit, and his performance is terrible. But I didn't; it didn't, you know, piss me off too much. It was just like this kind of Sunday afternoon type film. You know, you'd watch it's like a it's like a family movie, and so I, I mean, it's terrible, of course, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't hate it. What do you feel about it? I I didn't hate it, but like I just was very underwhelmed by it. It was just exactly what I thought it'd be. I mean, yeah. Chris kind of warned us, but it kind of. I think maybe he took the sting out of the surprise of how shit it was. Yeah, I think um, maybe that's part of it. That he he he'd already said that it was so bad. So I was I was prepared for something that was truly yeah, awful. It's very ropey, and I've seen a lot of Agatha Christie adaptations. My mum loves them. Yeah, same. Five stars. Five stars. That's very little else to say about it. Chris pretty much covered the the, the ground, covered all the bases. Great guy. Legend. Don't go to see his movie, but you should uh, become friends with Chris Young. Guy's a fucking legend. Fucking legend, mate. Love that guy. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass clenchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. No Stone Unturned, this is a new documentary by Alex Gibney, who, as I referenced in my introduction, is, seems to make documentaries incredibly fast-paced around a lot of very interesting issues. His next documentary will be about who killed him. He's made <laughs> so many enemies. It'll be the ultimate who done it. Yeah, and he'll solve it from beyond the grave. He's that good. He's that good. So No Stone Unturned is about some killings that happened in the small town of uh, Lockan Island, which is in County Down in Northern Ireland. And in 994, during a World Cup match where Republic of Ireland beat Italy, um, a couple of people in Baraclavas came into this bar and sprayed the place of bullets and six people died. And shortly afterwards, the Ulster Volunteer Force, a sort of loyalist parliamentary um, group, claimed responsibility for the murders. And the police and all the authorities and the British government said that killers were brought to justice. And despite a sort of wealth of evidence and you know everyone wanting to find the killers they were never brought to justice and the film is about uh, Alex Gibney investigating these murders and how they relate to the collusion between the British government and loyalist forces and the spine of the movie is the families of the victims uh, having a case being reopened and it's a bit similar to kind of Hillsborough where there was one inquiry which then got overturned and there was another inquiry and it all got kind of um, new information came to light in the most recent inquiry which was last year so this is a very easy film to review in a way because it's basically a movie version of really good investigative journalism, which is very compelling. And Alex Gibney has a gift for taking very complex issues and just breaking them down in very digestible ways. And this is a minor point, but Alex Gibney is a very good filmmaker for someone as ignorant as myself. And I feel he's constantly making films about things I should know about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, The Troubles is something I'm very ignorant about and I feel like I should really know about it because it's such a sort of recent bit of history and very local bit of history. And I saw this at the London Film Festival and he was there to introduce it. And he gave this um, introduction. He was like, I know like a lot of this information would be new, but it's for an international audience. And I was like, thanks. Yeah, for everyone else, explain <laughs> The Troubles. I obviously know Alex, but you know, for the room, uh, go over it. And it's a really compelling true life crime story and it has what those most like serial and stuff has as well. Like the details 
if the, if it was a fiction film you wouldn't believe it and it's full of stuff like the corruption the way it's played out and it's so absurd that it had to have been real for it to have been real you know what i mean like if you if this was like a hollywood schlocky movie you, you would just dismiss it and he's such a good journalist and him making the film actively changes the case he brings information to light that wasn't there and there's these little small moments of very satisfying sleuthing unlike mode on air express yes um where like there's a whole bit about there's certain police reports where the names have been redacted and then they find one bit of information and they can start putting the names there and like sort of seeing the chain of events that led to these murders and it's just a fascinating film and i think i read a few reviews which were a bit sniffy about how they don't think it kind of really encapsulated the troubles, but it's not trying to. It's very much like an entry point. It's about this one murder, which shows like from this small event how widespread it is. It's kind of indicative of an entire mood and atmosphere in Northern Ireland. So it's probably not the documentary that is going to encapsulate the troubles because that's probably maybe too complex a thing to do in one 90-minute film. But as just a like really compelling piece of like true-life journalism and a kind of entry point i would highly recommend it i thought it was ace awesome and i love alex gibney he's kind of like uh (laughs) going back to like the post i feel like he is the sort of like dogged patient like heroic journalist type and his like voice so he's got a very kind of like calm like flat tone and i'm like i'm in safe hands with gibney i hope he doesn't turn to be a sexual harasser or something because Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, because he's, you know, he's just too cool for school. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends. And the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. The Florida Project. This is directed by Sean Baker and written by Sean Baker and Chris Burgock. And Sean Baker is the director of Tangerine, a film famously shot on iPhones, all about transsexuals at Christmas. And this one is... A kind of similar mood. You can definitely tell it was directed by him. He's described it as pop verite as his style, which is probably quite a good way to describe it. And it's about the kids and their parents who live in this place called the Magic Castle, which is this kind of tacky hotel next to Disneyland. Uh, the sort of cheap hotels that are apparently all around there, which hope to get kind of runoff tourists who can get into Disneyland. They go to this place that looks a bit like it. And there's a whole community of impoverished people who can't afford a house or a flat and there's no government subsidized buildings so they end up living permanently in a motel and the film is set over one summer and it mainly follows this precocious six-year-old called Mooney as she kind of courts mischief and hangs out with her ragtag gang of like playmates and bonds with a caring but rebellious mother and they're often helped out by the sort of managers uh, by the hotel's manager Bobby played by Willem Dafoe and it's a sort of coming of age Portrait of a community, character piece, thing. Bit of, bit of uh, social, social, contemporary social history type pop, stuff. Pop verite. Pop verite. That's what Let's it is. Let's just use this term. Here is a clip. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists. You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Moni. You disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. 
You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You gotta relax, my man. You gonna redo my expense reports with your whatevs? Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You're gonna pay me for three hours that I gotta work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any I don't money. money. I don't have any money. So Pop Verite is like, what, like realism, but with bright colors. I guess so, which probably is quite an accurate description uh, of his thing. I love this movie. I think it's brilliant. What do you think, Sam? I liked it a lot as well. Oh, I liked it a lot. Didn't love it? No, I, I thought it was great. I loved it. <laughs> I'm sorry that I didn't you know, muster the, the strength of feeling that you did. But no, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I mean, I saw it after yeah, um, you had already um, waxed lyrical. Wax lyrical about how awesome it was. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's, um, I think, like, what makes it really compelling is that it's this kind of character piece and all the performances are incredibly charming and he gets uniformly brilliant child performances. You get the sense that a lot of it's, like, improvised or just, they're so... Um, they're so na- natural. Yeah, yeah exactly. They must, they must be improvised. And they're just, like, fun to hang out with. But it's also this interesting thing where like you kind of see the movie from their perspective of the kids perspective and it's like very joyous like in their sort of you know hanging out and just getting like and they're very th- carefree yeah, yeah existence but at the same time you are aware of the situation they're definitely sort of children at risk yeah and so there's a kind of weird dichotomy going on where it manages to balance this sort of carefree attitude with the stark reality in a way that never feels manipulative or uh, romanticizes poverty or too sentimental it kind of treads this very clever line between the two and it's hard not to be swept up by it yeah i think that's a that's a really good way to describe it it's an interesting portrait of poverty which doesn't really concentrate too much on like material deprivation you know like people going hungry or not having clothes or anything like that but it's just more about the social and sort of mental experience of poverty it's more like the stress of being poor yeah and the the way in which uh, poverty is like treated and the uh, sort of progression of the movie it feels like it's got a bit of a sort of meandering feel to it it has this i mean um that also adds to the feeling that it was improvised because it almost feels like scene to scene they were like you know let's just see where this goes and it gradually kind of uh, heads towards a climax yeah it kind of funnels down it funnels down <laughs> exactly like that it kind of yeah <laughs> sort of cuts things away and like uh you know, only keeps the most important stuff, and then it like bores over the end. So, as the film progresses, it kind of shows you more and more of the ways in which being poor and desperate and not having any prospects is affecting the lives of this family and the the, the various aspects of things that don't work. It's a bit like you know, The Wire. <laughs> it's this kind of looking at an aspect of society from a, like a couple of different angles and showing the ways in which like this is institutionally completely fucked. Yeah. And this is obviously, I mean, even the fact that they're living in a motel because, you know, they don't have any permanent accommodation is a, you know, yeah, damning, nice, nice shorthand for expressing the way that in which the whole thing is obviously not how it's supposed to be. And obviously that the place they're living in is like this completely fake uh, kind of pop uh, thing, you know, where like there's like a giant wizard hanging over um, yeah, yeah. like one of the buildings and stuff. Yeah. I feel like the, um, um, a lot of the acting is getting a lot of awards buzz and everyone's brilliant in it. And the, the young star Brooklyn Price is really six. It's like very insanely talented. 
It's a bit funny because, like, some of the movie is, like, obviously improvised. And you'll be like, oh, maybe she's just like that and they captured it. But then, like, at some point, she has to do some, like, incredible acting. You're like, okay, you are just the incredible actress. And the woman who plays her mother, Bria. She's astonishing. She's, like, the first time the director found her on Instagram. And she's just amazing. There's so much, like, moxie about her and so compelling. And the the only name in it is Willem Dafoe. And his character and his performance is kind of emblematic of, like, the film's attitude I feel like he's a bit of a surrogate for the for the director in that he's just a sort of like kind, very patient guy who doesn't really judge anybody. He's very unjudgmental and has like uh, just like you know he's just nice because that's who he is. And, yeah, you know. But he, but he's also like someone who is stuck in a very difficult position as well because of the system that he's in, where he has to he has his own boss, but he still has to enforce rules on other people, and he's constantly forced into situations where. Um, enforcing the rules leads to cruel outcomes yeah and it's like part of the thing that the movie is depicting is this world in which because of money basically people have to do like cruel things to each other yeah absolutely i think his performance you could so easily see how a kind of showier actor could like screw it up and his moments of kindness could be like overplayed and the whole movie i feel like is uh it's kind of brilliant but like a kind of five degrees from being terrible like, the whole thing about, like, they are in poverty, but they live next to Disneyland. Could it be the most, like, horriest of, like, cliches? But it just all works in a way which is, like, yeah, just who's, a testament to... It's like, who's that guy directed Crash? It feels oh, like, like Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis, yeah. You yeah, can yeah. kind of imagine that version of this movie. And the Disneyland thing is not really leaned into at all um, until the very end, when it serves... Uh, as a very nice kind of uh, visual... Uh, yeah, the movie's earned it by then. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean... You know, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would you put it there? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like the it's like the thematic Chekhov's gun. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you create that huge, like, if you set that huge theme in motion, it's got to pay off at the end, so. Yeah, yeah. I was like, um, I was reminded of, I'm always reminded of what other great directors are saying. I'm so up on what directors are saying about stuff. Very impressive. But um, the director, Michael Powell, of Powell and Pressburger, said this, like, very obvious point about what makes a good film which is that any film that successfully creates or recreates a world and you believe it has succeeded. Mm. And I feel like Florida Project is like, it's so vivid. You, you get such a sense of the place and the characters. I kind of feel like I could write fan fiction about the Florida Project, you know? Yeah, yeah. After absolutely. seeing it. Yeah. I couldn't about Murder on the Orient Express. Too fake. Yes, that's true. A sham. Um, yeah, so I heartily recommend. I hope Willem Dafoe gets an Oscar. Or I hope they all get Oscars. I hope everyone everyone should have an Oscar in this movie. They're all so brilliant. I would say if if you are a sucker for great child acting and sort of a, adorable child hijinks, who isn't? This is the this is absolutely the film for you. I think my dad would love this movie. You know, he loves little kids doing cute stuff. Uh, so it'll, he he'd be all over it. And so will you, listener, if you go if you go see it. Highly recommended. When Kraft heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. See, much like Florida Project, we start off meandering and we funnel down Finally. towards the end there, you know, Finally we really got it together. 
We anyway, certainly did. Lovely to see you, Sam. Great episode. I enjoyed talking on it. I enjoyed listening to your points. We made some great points there. Thanks very much. That's a good uh, sort of precy of how it went. I thought it was a very uh, very successful one as well. Next week, what are we going to be? Talking Loads. About? Of, we got to go see Paddington Two. Yeah, G- got to go see it. Perhaps my heart will be warmed even more than Florida Project. Um, there's a bunch of movies coming out. Good Times coming out. The Rob Pattinson movie. Mudbound. I'm hoping that because I didn't. These are all festival movies that I did not manage to catch myself. So I'm hoping they're going to appear on Netflix ASAP so that I can watch them in time for our review. But yeah, loads of stuff. Loads of stuff to review. Yeah, I can't let Danny just get away with all the talking. You know, I've got to be in there contradicting him, telling him he's talking loads of rubbish, like correcting him. When correcting he makes, me. When he makes factual errors and analytical errors. Yeah, you're like sort of Paxman, you know, just sort of constantly on my back. Yes. A yeah. human foghorn. <laughs> that is how I see myself. Um, enjoy your week. See ya. See you soon. Bye. Goodbye. Au revoir, mon ami. Find a level spot. (laughs) And stop your vehicle. (laughs) Remove spare tire and jack from the truck. Loosen the lug nuts. Jack up the car. (laughs) Remove the old wheel. (laughs) And fix the new wheel. (laughs) And finally lower the car and put the jack back into the trunk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 